Hello, and welcome to Running Mate, a podcast for Brits about the US election. In today's episode, what it's like being a Brit in the US right now. American life can seem very strange from the other side of the Atlantic. Armed militia roaming the streets, wildfires destroying large swathes of the West Coast, and I'll just have to check this one. The president regaling a Boy Scouts jamboree as if it's a New York cocktail party. And he went out and bought a big yacht. And he had a very interesting life. I won't go any more than that because you're Boy Scouts, so I'm not going to tell you what he did. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you're Boy Scouts, but you know life. You know life. Yeah, that seems to be right. But does it make any more sense if you're a Brit in the States? After all, the country's partisan politics makes the House of Commons look like a vicar's tea party. It's either feverish enthusiasm for a candidate or absolute sort of incredulity um, at them. And, And very rarely do you actually hear from voters. And is it time to think about your life choices when brushing shoulders with gun-toting protesters is literally nothing to write home about? Now I like barely even bat an eyelid, which is so strange to go from being terrified of guns to being really, really used to them. So, in this episode, how does the US election look on the ground through British eyes? listening to Running Mate, a podcast for Brits about the US election. So for anyone coming to the podcast for the first time, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a British journalist living and working in America, and at HuffPost UK, we wanted to try to produce something that made sense of the US election. We usually enlist the help of some of my reporting colleagues from our American team, but today I'm speaking to two other British journalists who have found themselves in the States. We've got Cordelia Lynch, who's a US correspondent for Sky News. Hello, Cordelia. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. And Tess Owen, who's senior correspondent at Vice News, and she covers extremism. Hello, Tess, how are you? Hello, thanks for having me. So this time around, we wanted to get an idea of what it's like to be a Brit in America in these recent years of all-round weirdness. Um, So... Guys, just to kind of start off, can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and kind of what kind of reporting you do and kind of what people say to you when they ask, hey, how's things in America? What's your kind of default response to that? Cordelia, do you want to have a go first? (laughs) Well, the stock answer is probably febrile, uh, wild, never dull, not remotely boring. Um, And I guess it's been that way since I came here, which was January 2016. Um, I was at Channel 4 News before and then I moved to Sky um, with the very exciting prospect of of covering uh, the election and the what was going to become the ascendancy of Donald Trump. And, you know, my job's kind of traveling across uh, America, but I've also spent quite a lot of time in Mexico and El Salvador and Colombia as well. We'll do the the news of the day, which has had us pretty anchored to Washington because of the kind of turbulence of of his White House. But we'll also do quite a lot of documentaries and sort of longer format stuff. We've looked at sort of militia groups, the rise of MS-13, anti-vaxxers of late, the um, debate around um, race and social justice in America, too. So, um, 
yeah, I've got a lot more grey hairs than I did <laughs> when I started. Yeah, it's quite a good news patch, as they say, America right now. <laughs> yeah, it's got a bit going on, hasn't it? Yeah, and have you have you, you doing stuff in DC? Have you kind of come come up close and personal with um, the president himself? Have you questioned him and said much to him? What's yeah, he like? uh, yes, I have. Um, I, I've been at quite a few of his press conferences and had a few exchanges with him. I mean, look, he's sort of captivating, unpredictable, um, mercurial, and so it's a sort of constant whirlwind of predicting what he might do next and he usually does something at I don't know 5 a.m at a tweet or somewhere around midnight that surprises everyone but yeah look he's uh, I think he's a phenomenal campaigner I've been to tens if not over a hundred of his rallies I guess in the years I've been here now and the way he's able to get a crowd to parrot back his key phrases the simplicity of his messaging he's very good at it yeah what about you, Tess? You 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 cover a slightly different beat, but no less um, intense, I guess. How how do you respond when people say, "Oh, it looks like America's on fire"? <laughs> well, um, so I cover extremism and guns for Vice News. I used to cover more sort of criminal justice and policing issues, but then I think since like 2017, maybe a bit before Charlottesville, I've been more focused on extremism which my mom recently joked to me that it used to be, used to be quite a niche beat. And uh, these days it doesn't feel that niche. And I think, yeah, when, when my friends at home asked me how things are, I thought it sort of depends on how much they want to know or if it's like a polite question, because, you know, I like joke about how we're doing a swan dive into fascism and like leave it at that. Or it's like <laughs> opening up a can of worms and I go on like a long tangent about what a nightmare the next few months are going to be or... Um, you know, or like the ongoing protests since George Floyd's death, for example, and like the Trump administration's response, sending federal troops to places like Portland, which have looked like a war zone on some nights and even surreal from Brooklyn. I can't imagine how surreal it is watching that from the UK. Um, and then plus the presence of armed groups at protest, which in some cases have been shooting each other. And then, um, of course, there's also QAnon uh, on descent to Congress. So there's been quite quite a lot going on in my feet. And um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. Right. Is there one story you've covered where you thought uh, this would never happen in America? And I think doing the extremism and guns beat, there's probably plenty, plenty of incidents of, of that, right? What I will say is that I used to be absolutely terrified of guns. And I'd maybe like only seen them in films or like maybe the, by the terrorism police in the UK or like in airports. Um, but I've now lost count of the number of events that I've reported on where I've been surrounded by people with guns. So like the NRA convention or like a gun worshipping church in, in um, Pennsylvania and then just protests and rallies. And now I like barely even bat an eyelid, which is so strange to go from being terrified of guns to being really, really used to them. It's, yeah, it's that kind of like not even not even batting an eyelid. And I think some of the coverage people have seen recently of, of kind of like, armed militia on the, on the streets has been a kind of a rise of that, hasn't there? Which, which again, I just can't imagine any scenes like that in the UK, in the UK at all. What about, what about you, um, Cordelia? Have you, was there a particular reporting experience you've had where you thought, ah, this is uniquely American and I, I could never do this in, in the UK? You know, I think there are a lot of moments like that because there's this assumption that there's lots we have in common you know, the UK and the US. And sort of ostensibly on the surface, it is true. But a lot of the fault lines, which 
might not be unique to America, but they're certainly a lot more intense, I think, here. And like, you know, as we were just hearing there, it's the kind of dimension of guns, which has obviously added a kind of extremism and, and threat to whenever those like fault lines sort of rear their heads. And and so it could be, you know, I was in, for instance, in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub shootings not long after I started where I think 49 people died. And um, it was particularly horrifying. I found that mass shooting, which is one of about eight that I've done since sadly I, I came here. Uh, that one really kind of struck home, uh, the sort of horror of it. Uh, but then there's other stories where you're looking at abortion rights. I mean, we've been to sort of Kansas City and we did a film about the doctors that fly around the country um, to places where they just don't have adequate access to um, abortion services. Um, and then there's just the, the days on the hill when you're just kind of running around trying to get a word in with a congressman or woman and they instantly speak in kind of 20 second parables or or just a person on the street i mean it's absolute sort of gold dust for television i find the americans are incredibly quick to take an opinion express it in a way that they know is going to be quick enough and sort of colorful enough for television and it's like looking every day through a kind of technicolor prism america um, which makes it very exciting. But is there? Do you think there? Do you think there are um, some similarities between the UK and the US? Um, I guess I'm thinking particularly of the kind of Trump Brexit comparison. Yeah, I think politically, this sort of populist wave has got a lot of threads between America and uh, and the UK for sure. I mean, I feel so kind of out of the loop with. Britain for the moment. I used to cover Westminster, but it's it's been a long time since I had. And look, I think it, it speaks to those that felt forgotten. That was kind of a key phrase that Trump used. And I think that, you know, UKIP and, and the like were also able to sort of tap into people that felt neglected, that felt that they were financially um, not getting the rewards they should for their hard work, that didn't like this kind of globalism where you've got a sort of multicultural nation and some people that feel they're being eclipsed, their rights, the opportunities. Um, and, you know, these things oscillate and let's see what happens this time round. But, yeah, I mean, as we've just seen from leaked um, information around what, um, Boris Johnson was saying to Donald Trump as well that there, there, there were things that connected the two countries in the way they felt, I guess. What about the election campaign it, itself? How are you, Tess? Maybe you can explain kind of how, I don't know, how, 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 wild, how wild it is or, or how you think it's, think it's going. I mean, I'm always surprised by, I don't know, the amounts of money involved in, in American campaigns. I'm surprised about the kind of hysterical nature of the, 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 the advertising, some of the kind of attack ads on on Biden from the Trump campaign seem pretty wild. Uh, anything in the election campaign that kind of strikes you as being, again, like uniquely different in the, in the US compared to the UK? I mean, I think it's insane how long the election here goes on for. Like, I think in the UK, it's about five weeks compared to what seems like absolutely forever here. And especially at times when the country is already so polarized, it just really lets this very toxic moment just drag out um, for like a year and a half. And then I think as well, the way that the elections treated on like cable news, like the intense partisanship, and you can really see why people get 
especially now, get trapped into their own echo chamber because if you go between, for example, like MSNBC and Fox, it is like just looking at a completely different country um, through two different lenses. It's absolutely um, surreal to me. Cordelia, you must notice that, particularly being a broadcaster, the difference between how you broadcast in as a British journalist in the US compared to your um, contemporaries, I guess, in the, in the US. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with Tess, and I actually find it really frustrating. Um, you see these kind of, it's almost like a sort of post-game panel where you've got kind of 10 commentators all confirming each other's position. And that position has been laid out by the channel early on in the campaign. It's either feverish enthusiasm for a candidate or absolute sort of incredulity um, at them. And and very rarely do you actually hear from voters. And I'm kind of stunned that four years later, when one imagines newsrooms hopefully scratched their heads and spoke to each other about why they failed to identify the rise and appeal of Donald Trump. And you'd think one of the keys to sort of rectifying the problem was going out and and chatting to people in those swing states and understanding what it was or what it is about Donald Trump. And yet I still don't see that much. I mean, we were out, um, we've been kind of out and about throughout this year, throughout COVID in the hospitals in I think I've travelled to about 10 states and um, we've done quite a lot around kind of voting. And it's it's tricky this year because I think there are a lot of complexities to the debate. They're not ideal candidates for lots of people. Um, and we're rarely seeing American crews or broadcasters. And, and it's kind of worrying because it feels like a real disservice to, to the country. Totally. There was was it Joe, Joe Biden's com, um, convention speech. I remember kind of w- watching the kind of response after that, and it was like you know the greatest speech a man, you know a human has ever given was the kind of <laughs> yeah. the general tone. It was like it was fine. It was a perfectly <laughs> reasonable speech, but this kind of this this kind of you know um, hyperbole that you hear all the time is, and that's kind of and that's the more reasonable channels, right? I mean, you know, that's probably like CNN. If you go over to Fox News, that's another. That's, that, that's another beast altogether. I mean, I think CNN commits as many crimes as Fox News sometimes, honestly. Um, you know, they, they take a position and they just hammer and hammer. And, and also it's like this sort of misconception that these key kind of moments in the election that broadcasters have decided on, so that the conventions, the debates, you know, whatever it is that they've spent a lot of money getting their teams to, um, will influence voters. And I think sometimes that's not always the case actually it comes down to more local issues or and what do you guys think about the kind of mood in the country at the moment what do you think americans make of trump at the moment tess and what do they make of biden do you think um well i can say from like for example just being you know living in brooklyn and being like a being in media that um Probably a lot of my peers were not thrilled with Biden, but they've sort of gradually decided to accept him. They probably would have wanted someone like Warren or Bernie. Um, I think from like an extremism perspective, obviously the alt-right um, kind of rallied around Trump in 2016. And, um, you know, people like Richard Spencer and and there was a whole, he had like a whole fan club and they've really turned off him in the last couple of years. And, and so he does not have that following in the same way. And interestingly, 
some of these more newer extremist movements, like I've been covering the Boogaloo Boys recently pretty closely, which is this insurgent anti-government movement of guys who wear Hawaiian shirts and bring um, AR-15s to protests. <laughs> Completely normal behaviour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a, yeah, just, just a, a regular day. Um, they are rallying around Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian candidate, to the point where they're actually like, they're, they're, they're organising buses to kind of like, follow her around like a fan club sort of on uh, her various speaking events so and and her and her uh her um vp nominee is um he's been speaking at boogaloo boy events so i think it's a mutual um love yeah cordelia this i i get this sense of like you know pe people who are supporting kind of almost as tess says if they're if they're backing biden it's kind of like holding their nose and doing it and trump does seem to be alienating even the kind of the 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 supporters he had garnered was his various kind of kind of um you know kind of dog whistle politics what do you what do you make of it all yeah well we went a couple of weeks ago actually to michigan which is obviously um uh, really important in the 2016 election for swinging it for trump and we went to sort of the swingiest county there a place called macomb county and i spoke to african-american voters in um, Detroit first and one of them had a great phrase just to go back with Americans just dropping these sound bites she said um, you know we'll hold our noses and clutch our pearls but we'll vote for Biden because we have to um, and there was this sense that it was a referendum on Trump and in order to sort of promote social justice and their agenda they had to go for the old white dude who they weren't very impressed by his record or his future promises, but they certainly didn't want Trump. And then in Macomb County, we met um, quite a few Republicans who who went for Trump, had voted Republican all their life, and say this time round they won't. And it was all about his conduct and behaviour, his character. So it's kind of what Biden has been really banking his whole campaign on is that people will be so disgusted by the tenor and tone of what Trump says that they'll say enough is enough. And in places like Macomb, they only need a narrow portion of people to feel like that, to push Biden over the edge. But who knows, there's still an absolutely locked in devoted base, unlike anything I've ever seen or really read about in, in US history. And um, it's impressive and it, it, he's got that banked. He just needs to expand and it's whether he can do that. Trump's sort of lost the favour of the alt-right, but like you're saying that he does actually still have a very rabid fan base of like, for example, the Proud Boys, which are like a far-right street fighting gang. Um, and Andy's like, you know, very extreme, like back the blue um, MAGA caravans that we've seen um, across the country or boat parades as well. Um, so yeah, I think that, that yeah, he still does have, like his fan base should definitely not be underestimated. There was one thing that somebody said to us. We went to a women's uh, a women for Trump event in Michigan, and the woman said, "This silent majority, well, it's still roaring like a lion." And the key message amongst all of those women was law and order. They said. We don't want Trump to be our Sunday school teacher. We don't want him sort of uh, sending moral messages to our kid, but we want him to protect the country, which I thought was fascinating, that that was the most important thing in their mind. And that's definitely where Trump's trying to move the campaign, right? It seems extraordinary that in a country with 
you know, 180,000 plus deaths because of pandemic, and you can't say that Trump's had a good pandemic by any by any stretch. And yet, he seems to be shifting the debate onto law and order quite successfully, in, to the extent that the American media is certainly talking about it a lot more than they have been about the pandemic in, in, in recent weeks. Do you think that's what's going to define the, the, this campaign ultimately? Or do you think it's, it is going to come back to the fact that people will still be dying, probably at a greater rate come, come November, people have lost their jobs. Where do, we think, where do we think the campaign's going and what will define it? Cordelia, what do you think? I think the two issues are probably the greatest. I think there's three things. I think it's COVID. I think it's law and order, straight racial justice. Um, and I think it's the economy too. People will want to feel kind of money in the pocket and that they believe their finances will be protected by whichever candidate they choose. I think what's interesting with COVID, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals throughout the year and seen some pretty horrifying stuff. And obviously it has not left America. The shadow of the pandemic still casts a pretty um, wide net over various states. But people won't necessarily blame Trump for it. This kind of attempt to put it on China and call it the sort of um, China virus, I think to some extent could work. Um, and the law and order stuff, in my view, if, if, if Biden doesn't get a handle on how to respond to it, it's law and order is how he loses. Because... I think he was full throttle in his rebuttal recently, but it came quite late. And I think Democrats were sort of agitating for him to condemn some of the violence quicker. And he was reluctant. And I think it's because he's trying to appease um, those kind of in the middle that want to see their country secure and also the progressives in the party that are desperate for change. And it's quite a nuanced thing for him. And I don't know how elegant he is at bridging that gap and Trump is just so black and white on it and I think the more if there's another Kenosha um, that plays in his favour. We'll come back to Cordelia and Tess but I've also spoken to John Scardino a spokesperson for Democrats Abroad which is a branch of the Democratic Party that represents voters living overseas. We talked about how Biden can win and how crimson it is to live in another country when Trump is your president. Just for people who aren't aware of Democrats Abroad, what 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 actually is it, and what does it what does it do? Uh, it's it's the official um, uh, overseas arm of the Democratic Party. Um, so we have. Um, what we call country committees or chapters in um, more than 40 different countries. Uh, we have members of Democrats abroad that live in almost every country around the world. Um, and through those country committees, um, we organize um, uh, a variety of different events where people can come and talk about um, government politics. Um, but more importantly, I think we are recognized by the Democratic Party as it would um, a state party. So um, the Democratic Party of New York State or the Democratic Party of California 
Um, and as you know, having, I'm sure, watched some of the conventions recently, uh, in the process of selecting a presidential candidate, the candidates go from state to state and they, they win votes and they are awarded delegates from each state uh, based on the proportion of votes that they've won in that state. And Democrats Abroad has um, 21 delegates that we send to the convention. Um, so we are an official part of the party in, in that sense that we are involved in nominating and choosing the, um, uh, the presidential candidate. How many Democrats Abroad are there, just to get a flavor of how big the kind of voting block is when it comes to the general election? Well, we are considered to be, uh, by the Democratic Party, um, in terms of overall size and our involvement in the party and in the convention and the selection of the party's presidential candidate, we are comparable to sort of a, a mid-sized state like um, uh, uh, Iowa or um, uh, any of the states that have about, well, uh, for example, New Hampshire, Vermont, all of them send somewhere between 50 and 20 delegates to the convention. So we're we're sort of considered by the Democratic Party to be an organization of about that size. Now, the the question is always raised, you know, how many Americans are there? How many voters are there that live overseas? And that's a number that ranges um, anywhere from 6 million to 9 million. And how does the election look from your perspective? I mean, you're a long way from, from, from home. Um, a lot's going on. The pandemic is is continuing to ravage the country. Uh, protests, Trump's response to the protests. How does it look? Do you think from where you are compared to what it looks like in the U.S.? I think there are a lot of there are a lot of surprises. I'm surprised that um, things are as close as they are, according to to polling, and and I was surprised, obviously, by the results of the 2016 election. Um, I was very pleased, I have to say, with the results of the 2018 midterm elections when a lot of Democratic uh, congressmen and women were elected to the House of Representatives and Democrats were able to regain control of the House of Representatives. Um, but it's, you know, these are unprecedented times and, and um, there are historical changes going on, whether it's with uh, the COVID-19 virus or with the, um, uh, the, the, the kinds of unprecedented things that, that Donald Trump is doing um, as president in his disregard for the standards of the way that, that presidents of both parties have, have governed in the past. Um, and so I, it's, I continue to be surprised, and I think I would feel that way whether I was back home in the in the states or from my perspective here um but one thing i will say graham is is um you know when I've, I've been in london as i mentioned for for about 20 years now and uh and i go back and visit family in the states on a regular basis and um and very in touch with the the politics and everything that are going on at home um i'm a school teacher here in london at, at a secondary school, a state secondary school in, in London. And um, when Barack Obama was president, um, you know, he was invited to, to come to parliament and speak in the Great Hall. Um, and, and he got, you know, incredible treatment, not only in Europe, but in other countries where he went. 
and the, the image and the prestige and the, the, the profile of America in those days, um, its profile abroad, I think was incredible. And it, it made you feel, as, a, as an American living abroad, it made you feel a bit like, you know, you were kind of like a roadie for some big rock star. And when he came through town, you felt like, you know, you were part of this incredible um, uh, change that was going on, this positive change in the direction that America was going on and its its position on the global stage. Um, and ever since 2016, I, I certainly don't feel that way. Um, you know, it's in fact, just the opposite. It's a, it's a bit embarrassing to see not only some of the decisions that have been made by this president, but um, the direction the country um, has been going in for the last three and a half or so years. Um, so it's, I feel it uh, very um, severely, I guess, to say, uh, you know, this, this change in the, in the way that America is viewed uh, these days. Do you get British people um, offering you condolences? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, you know, colleagues at the school where I teach, you know, they, um, they often say to me, you know, what is going on? I mean, fewer and fewer have said that now because it's, you know, you become numb to some of the things that President Trump has done. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that he has any coherent, consistent plan on any stage, whether it's foreign affairs, health care, racial equality, the economy or anything else. Um, it seems that the, the only thing that has been consistent throughout his term has been his interest in staying in power and controlling things. And as a Democrat, people won't be surprised you're supporting Joe Biden. But why is he, is he anything other than just an alternative to Trump and everything that you've just said there that brings this kind of sense of embarrassment, I guess? Um, Biden has a proven record of things that I, I believe in and I, that I respect. I mean, to, to answer your question most directly, I think one of the things that should encourage people to, to vote for him and support him is, you know, this was a guy who was in charge of cleaning up successfully after the last mess when President Obama put Vice President Biden in charge of the recovery. Um, he did a fantastic job of that. And, and we were on track for unprecedented growth, um, the a stretch of growth from that period going forward. So when Donald Trump came in in 2016 and took office in 2017, he was already picking up on a, on a trend that was going in, in the right direction from an abysmal crisis, economic crisis. Um, but, you know, the, Trump doesn't recognize that. All he talks about, of course, is you know, the, the, the miracle that he's brought to, uh, to the economy and not, um, the incredible foundation that was built up after the, um, the 2008 financial crisis. And do you think there'll be more Democrats abroad if Trump wins in November? Uh, you never know. Uh, uh, Democrats abroad, Democrats in general, um, we're interested in rebuilding the country. Um, you know, somebody said that, the idea of America is, is just that it is an idea. It is a, it is a dream. It is a, it is a concept and it's one that requires nurturing and, and tending. And, um, it, it is a, it is a constant ongoing evolutionary process. 
I hope and I pray that, that, that we are going through, we've been going through, you know, in the Trump um, administration, a bad patch here, and that we'll, we'll be on the road to recovery very soon, within a matter of months. Um, Joe Biden is, is elected, and we begin to address some of these problems and, and begin to heal America. Um, I, I think that, that we can be a very proud country again. Okay, guys, I just wanted to wrap things up with a very quick, quick fire series of questions that I haven't prepared you for. So you'll be ple pleased to hear that. Um, but if we can give uh, folks back home a bit of a bluffer's guide to American politics via these questions, just stuff that they can say in the pub to make themselves sound more interesting <laughs> and knowledgeable about politics. So I'll fire away. Give, give me your, give me your best. Give me your best responses. Um, easy one. Okay, easy one to start. What's 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 the best American city and why? Cordelia. Okay, I love Detroit. It's full of uh, kind of edge, um, a mixture of people, great music, great art. Um, politically, it's really interesting. Okay, Tess best city in america new orleans for obvious reasons you know great music great food you can walk around with a cocktail in your hand um and it's just yeah everyone's partying so yeah um okay here's the, the politics one who's going to win in november trump or biden that's so, that's so unfair <laughs> you can give me the politician's answer then <laughs> <laughs> look i think um trump could win on the night i think biden will ultimately uh win if he doesn't seriously mess things up okay should we should we trust the polling is, is is that is that a good thing to go by or does it does it just drive you crazy keeping trying to keep tabs of, of polling i do my very best to ignore it and try to travel as much as i can um i, I don't trust the methodology and i think there's a lot of people staying quiet about their choices and i think it was the mistake everyone made in 2016 so yeah i think yeah yeah, yeah i think yeah i mean the polls I mean, honestly, I'm surprised that Trump is even doing as well as he is doing in the polls now, which makes me a bit, you know, wary about what the overall result will be. And I do remember from 2016, the election night, uh, the New York Times um, election uh, the monitor thing that kept the needle that kept switching back right. and forth. I think we're a bit traumatized from that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's great, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me, Cordelia and Tess, and thanks everyone for listening. Being a Brit in America is an incredibly strange experience. It's like you're intruding on private grief and it's not really your place to say anything. But it also gives you a perspective not afforded to most Americans. That the widespread ownership of guns doesn't have to be normal, or that healthcare free at the point of use is nothing to be scared of. Please do subscribe now for more episodes and make sure you check out HuffPost UK's other podcasts, including Commons People, which is our weekly look at UK politics, which are available in all the usual places. Thanks very much and speak to you again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.